Peter Thomas Fornatal here. We at In The Money Media are so happy to be partnering with Maggie Wolfendale on this new podcast series. On these shows, Maggie is telling the story of the horses through the voices of the people who love them and whose lives have been changed by them. Best of all, they're being produced to benefit our friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, whose mission of saving lives, both human and equine, is so important to Maggie and so important to us at the network. To make a gift to support this show and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, go to trfinc.org slash offtrack. That's trfinc.org slash offtrack. The next voice you hear will be Maggie Wolfendale. or brown gelding, full June 5, 1996, in Florida, by Pleasant Colony, out of Tiamo, by Slua Gold. 87 career starts, 16 wins, 19 seconds, 10 thirds. Earnings, $270,649. Jockey club name, Pleasant Italian. This is his story off track, as told by Connie Harrison. So please be joined by my next guest, Connie Harrison, uh, who now lives in Chicago, but Connie, we first met in Saratoga. So that right there leads to the fact that You've been around the racetrack for basically a good portion of your life. Yes, it's it's been quite a run. Um, I actually didn't start galloping until I was thirty, I think, something along those along those lines. I did the hunter jumpers before that. What got you to the racetrack at at thirty? Because you know, a lot of people I talk to, or you know, myself included, we grew up doing show horses. But once you graduate high school, the racetracks where you go because you want to make some money. But <laughs> what got you there at thirty as opposed to twenty? Uh, well, um, kind of an interesting story. Um, my mother had always been a huge fan of the racehorses, although she had nothing to do with the racetrack itself. Um, she was more of the go to the Derby and the Breeders' Cup type of fan. Um, and she actually passed away very suddenly um, when I was 24 and she was 44. And I was crushed, absolutely crushed. Um, only child, yes. And uh, um, so it was really hard. And I had actually left um, I was making some not very good decisions, um, and not dealing with this at all. Um, but I started dating a guy and he actually inherited 12 racehorses, um, because the guy that he bought them for died. So they went, they, they stayed with him and he looked at me and he said, well, Looks like you got to ride them and I got to train them. And I went, what are you talking about? I do hunter jumpers. I train little kids. You know, I don't do thoroughbreds. Well, 
all it took was once. And, you know, I sat on a two-year-old and the rest was history. I ended up starting out at Arlington and, um, and the story goes from there all the way up until 2015. I think I retired from the track. (laughs) Oh my, what an amazing story. So what led you from just galloping, you know, horses basically for someone that, I I suppose he didn't really have a trainer's license or he didn't, you know, he wasn't that big into the game um, to, like I said, making your way to Saratoga. Well, um, he eventually got his trainer's license, um, but I decided that it would be much better to, to actually get paid to do this instead of do this for him for nothing. So I ended up, um, um, Dave McLean, I had a, a, Dave McLean and I had mutual friends and he said, come on out to the racetrack and uh, at Arlington and, you know, we can see how you gallop and uh, I'll never forget it. I thought I was all that in a bag of chips and I get out there and he says, you know, go from the eighth pole to the around the wire. And I said, okay. So I went literally from the eighth pole to the wire and I pulled up. I thought I was all that in a bag of chips. And he looked at me and he goes, you missed a round. Anyway, so it was, yeah, so it was kind of funny. So I was very new to the game and ended up working for um, Carl Nafsker with Sarah Dunham. Um, And that's how I ended up following them around with Carl's second string for, I don't know, 20 years, something along those lines. And I just traveled with the Nafsker crew. I went everywhere they went. (laughs) Were you there for the unbridled years or... I was not. I was okay. there after. I was there for the street sense years. Um, so that was that was and the vicar years. I'm going back yeah. a long time now. Um, but yes, and it was fun. So we went. You know, we were in Kentucky and and um, Florida and uh, Chicago when Chicago was still running. And then uh, I decided that I wanted to stay in Louisville. So I ended up joining Carl's first string um, in Louisville and I was there. And then that led to, you know, all different types of opportunities. And um, when the towers came down now, remember at the time I was doing, I had gotten my securities licenses. So I was doing investments in the afternoons and galloping the racehorses in the morning. So it was, it was quite a, uh, quite a run. I really had a ball quite frankly, doing kind of night and day worlds of two different things, but, uh, Um, that very fulfilling, I'm sure. Yes. So when the towers came down, I was fully licensed at the time. Um, when the towers came down, I just reached out to the investment firms that had had, uh, substantial human casualty and human loss. And so I reached out to all the big firms and Morgan Stanley picked me up, and said, you're now working for us in Albany, New York. And I went, I've never been to Albany, New York. So I packed up everything and headed to Saratoga, sight unseen. Of course, you know, being in the racing industry, you always know somebody somewhere um, that can get you started. So that's that's how I ended up in Saratoga, knowing that at some point, friends would show up for the summer and, uh, you know, and I'd be able to gallop again in the mornings and keep doing the investments in the afternoons. So that's how I ended up in Saratoga. The racetrack is truly a small world because you can go anywhere in the world and find somebody you know. But so what 
prior to the racetrack, were you always involved in the financial sector? Um, I grew up around it. My father traded options on the CBOE here in Chicago. Um, so yes, I, I've been surrounded by the investment world since I was, you know, six years old. So yeah, <laughs> so I grew up with it. I grew up with it. It's changed quite a bit, but I grew up with it. Now, your time in Saratoga, I think, what was that time we spent in the past, like 2012, 2013 or something? Mm -hmm. Um, Were you galloping for Bruce Brown at the moment? Yes. At that time, I was galloping for Bruce. I had galloped for Al Stahl um, during the summers when he would come up. And uh, I ended up staying in Saratoga year round is how that kind of all evolved. I stopped traveling down to Florida. Um, so I would gallop for Al Stahl when he was there in the summer and, you know, bookend it with, you know, either Nick Zito or Bruce Brown or, you know, whoever, whoever was there and needed some help. Um, and then I would wave to everybody in November when they would leave. So, <laughs> oh, it's always kind of a sad sight. Those last uh, vans pulling out uh, down Nelson Avenue in Saratoga. Well, anyway, your life led you to also, is rescue the right word for Pleasant Italian and you? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. I galloped Pleasant Italian down at Gulfstream Um probably 2000, 2001, 2002, I'm guessing. Um, it was a long time ago. Um, and he was a nightmare. He would go to, and from, he was huge. He was 18 hands if he was an inch. And he would literally go to and from the racetrack on his hind legs, waving to the crowd. And people would go, you know, Con, you all right? And I'd go, I'm fine. Because he felt super solid underneath me. But it was, it was just not, you know, <laughs> I'm good, seriously. Um, so, so I galloped him when he was a two and a three-year-old. And then all of a sudden I get this phone call from Diana Baker um, in 2007. And she said, you know, Connie, do you remember Pleasant Italian? And I said, yes, he was a nightmare. Why? You know, I was immediately <laughs> suspicious. So anyway, she filled me in that he was had, had gone you know, down the ranks um, in the racing world, which which can be a um, kind of a sad occurrence when people keep trying to run them um, and they just drop and drop and drop. But anyway, she said he's with a, a not so nice trainer and he's probably headed to slaughter. Well, I couldn't let that happen for goodness sake. So the back and forth emails started um, and I ended up and the guy, the trainer was really awful. Um, and I ended up, he made me buy him from him or he was going to slaughter. Those were my two choices. And I thought, oh, you are not nice karma. Anyway, yep. um, so I, and I was moving at the time. So this was probably July, August of 2007. And at the time I had gotten a, um, an opportunity to start a raw help a group start a raw, raw materials fund outside of Chicago. So I was going from Chicago or Saratoga back home to Chicago where I had grown up. So I bought this horse sight unseen, right? And um, had him shipped to a friend of mine's farm down in Lexington, Kentucky. I had no idea what shape he was in. All I knew is that this was meant to be for whatever reason. Um, 
And it was a horrible story. They had, they ended up shipping him. Like I said, he's 18 hands if he's an inch in a cattle trailer. And that was the year that the Ohio river flooded. So a four hour journey turned into 10 hours. And when he got to my friend's farm, I'll never forget it. She was there. She was there to meet the trailer because I was moving, right? Everything had to be done. I was stopping in Lexington on my way to Chicago and they pulled a piece of plywood out, put it in the back of this trailer, backed him out and he collapsed. He collapsed on the side of it and he laid there. And my friend Sally's going, oh, we've come too far. You know, don't die on us now. Come on, don't die on us now. And they had unloaded him in the middle of a field. And and he struggled to his feet. You know, he looked Sally dead in the eye. From what I understand, I wasn't there, thank goodness. But he looked Sally dead in the eye, shook himself up, struggled to his feet, and walked off. And, you know, and two weeks later, I was at the farm to see what in the world I had gotten myself into. <laughs> I guess wow. it was all. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's so lucky to have had you to do that and, and Sally as well. Mm-hmm. So where did, I mean, how did the journey progress from there? Because it could only go up, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I went, I stopped in Lexington on my move from Saratoga back to Chicago. And I saw, I had, like I said, I had no idea what I was going to get into. Um, and of course I had peppermints in my pocket. Every racetracker knows that. And, um, so I came to the gate and he was, and everybody was saying how much better he looked and Maggie, he was rail thin. He was, you know, I mean, they had done his feet. They had made sure that he was fed. He was, you know, he was getting, he was out moving around. He had, he had, he had connected with a 28 year old mare that was there um, living out the rest of her life. So those two were, you know, together all the time. And I rattled that peppermint wrapper and he just walked right up. I mean, it was kind of as simple as that. And Um, so that was in September and I carried on, he stayed there and the, the people that owned the farm, um, ended up delivering him to me up where I was living outside of Chicago over Thanksgiving weekend, I think is when he arrived finally with me. And, you know, it was, it was amazing. He had put on weight. He looked better. His eyes were brighter. It's just the, 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 the resilience of horses never ceases to amaze me. Never ceases to amaze me. I mean, he 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 knew that uh, I was his rescue person for sure. So you know, it was it was quite an event. <laughs> wow. Oh, I mean, it's yeah, me on the brink of tears because mm. you talk about that resiliency, and it's almost as if. It was instilled in him because I'll be honest, he is the first horse that we've had here on Off Track where his PPs take up two pages. <laughs> so 87 starts um, all over the country too. I mean, he made it to um, New York. He made it to Saratoga, Fairgrounds, Ellis, Hoosier, Arlington. Uh, he was all over the place. And 
I mean, it's just an amazing story that he he landed with you. And what kind of so when he came to you, he had to be what, 11, 10 or 11? Um, something along those lines. Um, I don't even know. I mean, his last race shows 2006 and he would have been 10 at that point. Okay. So he came to me when in 2007 when he was 11 and, or, um, so yeah, so they were running him at age 10, really? Well, he was ridiculously well-bred, which was his downfall. If he wasn't that well-bred, they probably would not have, have hammered him into the ground. Yeah. Pleasant colony out of a slew mm-hmm. of gold mare. What's yeah. funny is just, you know, he's so, you talk about him being so big. He was a very late foal. He wasn't mm-hmm. born until June. Yeah. So what, you get him at 11 years old. Mm-hmm. You're you're in Chicago now. Mm-hmm. What were your days like with him? Um. Well, I had grown up in a little subdivision called Trout Valley. And Trout Valley was the old Hertz estate um, that they had made into a subdivision. Now, the reason that I'm giving you this backstory is, so there's 200-ish homes in that community. Well, when I moved back to Chicago at age whatever I was, um, 43, 44, I don't even remember. Um, But I moved back into that subdivision. That subdivision had its own barn, its own marina, its own tennis course, its own pool. So all of this stuff is private. So he went to the barn that um, that's that is part of this community. And so I, you know, I would go down in the morning and feed him and do his stalls. And, you know, I remember I completely redid one of the paddocks um, so he could have his own paddock to rehab fully. And, uh, you know, I saw him twice a day, every day um, for a couple, for about a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, but, you know, I just watched him grow and flourish and constantly try and bite me and keep his tongue sticking out of the side of his mouth and, um, you know, just start to to flourish and thrive. He colicked badly once. They thought they were going to lose him. Um, we thought we were going to lose him. And the vet said, well, he has to come to the clinic. And I said, no, he doesn't. And he stayed right with me. Um, you know, I think I slept in his big feed tub thing that we had there. Um, but... Uh, he was, he, he was, he was something, you know, he, he really was, he, he knew, but, um, there was no way that, um, I was going to risk him leaving my side. Now he was treated so badly that it took me, cause I did his stall. It took me probably, I don't know, almost 10 days of literally standing in his stall with a plastic pitchfork and waiting for him to feel comfortable enough to walk up to me. I mean, I don't know what they did to this horse, but they took it to him. There was there was no doubt in my mind. So I let him make all of the decisions when he was comfortable, and it seemed to work. He's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Did did you ever feel as though you know you you had ridden him as a young horse? Did you ever feel as though that he remembered you? That there was still that bit of a connection. I, 
I don't know. Um, you know, certainly when I sat on him, he he turned into a completely different horse than that docile, cute little thing that was following me around without a halter because he didn't go on cross ties at all. Um, but, you know, I mean, he wasn't quite as animated as he was before when um, what was what really hit home for me is so I kept him at this community barn um, and the guy that I was dating at the time did not want me to spend as much time at the barn. I'm sure we can all relate to that at some point in our lives. No, so, God, you just marry a trainer. They understand. Oh, see, now I screwed that all up. Anyway, um, so I ended up sending him to a farm that was about, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes away. And he was turned out all day and he was pampered and and because I wanted him to be, you know, himself. And um, I had had a, so this was probably... 2000 and so this was the spring of 2009 that I moved him and it was hard because I didn't get to see him every day but he was strong and he was good and he was you know everything was was fabulous there but he um I had had a stroke in December of 2009 and so I didn't get to see him probably until end of March early April when I was strong enough to go. So when I went to the barn to see him, um, you know, and he did not cross tie. So I just, you know, so he just ground tied, just hooked the lead to his halter and dropped it. And he would stand there for days. Um, but it was so sweet because <clears throat> every time people came up to visit and to say hi and to check on me, he would very subtly put himself between me and the person that was talking to me. And he would just wrap his little head around my body. He was never aggressive, none of that, but he was definitely going to protect me because he knew that obviously something was had changed drastically. So, you know, that was that was that was a pretty cool thing, actually. I uh touched my heart in more ways than one, for sure. For sure. I mean, that, that's just amazing. Yeah. That they they know. I mean, Thank I swear you. they know. Like if you're pregnant or something mm-hmm. like that, you know the the real I, and to mares are great, but I swear the geldings are always the softies. <laughs> they 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 love to be loved. They love to love you and protect you. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Now, yeah, it was cool. Your stroke. How how much of recovery was that for you? Um, I was hugely fortunate because I actually had my stroke in the doctor's office. So, yeah, you know, right. <laughs> so I went to the hospital. They were, they were able to go in and get the clot. So my stroke happened in my occipital lobe. Um, so it affected my eyesight, um, is what happened there. Of course, anytime you have a traumatic brain injury or a stroke, um, you know, it's, it's, it's recovery. It takes a tremendous toll on your body to begin with. Um, but you know, I mean, I remember I used to crawl around everywhere cause standing up was, was too much of an effort. And, uh, um, it really, it, it wasn't, debilitating. I did not end up in a wheelchair um, or anything along those lines. I did have to, it did take quite a bit of time to get my strength back, 
But, you know, I mean, I'm a horse chick. Nothing is going to keep me down for long if I have anything to say about it. So, you know, it was just, it was a daily fight and it was a daily, you know, uh, progression toward, you know, who I wanted to be again. And uh, some people aren't that fortunate. I was very fortunate. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was a good couple of months. Um, And uh, when I saw you, um, because I had then moved from Illinois back to the East Coast. And I remember I wanted to gallop again and all of the doctors said, oh, no, you don't. But because <laughs> it, it turned out that I had a blood condition, there was a, a multitude of factors that contributed to the stroke itself. Um, but I remember getting back to New York and it took an act of Congress. I'm telling you what, so I'm talking to the New York doctors. I'm talking to the Chicago doctors and, you know, please let me, come on guys. I've been stable for X amount of time. Let me gallop. And they're going, oh, good Lord, here we go. Um, so they did. And I had galloped, I was galloping for Al Stahl in the summer of 2012. Um, and it was there's nothing like the racetrack and the support that you get. Because I remember the very first time that I turned around and galloped that first mile on the main track at Saratoga, um, I was in tears. You know, the outriders were in tears. Everybody was in tears. I almost ran over Bobby Flay at the time. It was very exciting, you know? Oh yeah. He's got, (laughs) yeah, that, that's another story, but, uh, Anyway, it was quite something. So the doctors kept a very tight eye on me, as you can imagine, and I had to be very cognizant of what my body could and could not do. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was able to gallop for 2012, 13, 14, and the fall of 2015 is when the doctors made me retire. So um, You are a warrior, girlfriend. Just stubborn. I don't know if a warrior is a good thing. I'm just stubborn. That's all there is to it. But it was quite an adventure. Well, we haven't really touched on, though. I mean, getting back in the saddle after a stroke is, is commendable in its own right. But as far as riding um, Magnum, what did you guys do together? Um, you know, I, he, I dragged him all over the country with me. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, Maggie was more that, and this may sound a little silly, but he knew that I rescued him. I knew that he rescued me after the stroke. And we, as long as, I was able to be in a position to physically go out and take care of him um, wherever I was. It was, we just kind of hung out together. I, I sat on him some, you know, the last thing you want to do after you gallop all morning is go ride in the afternoon. Um, but, you know, he didn't care, you know, he, he had, he was living a wonderful life Um he was turned out all day or all night, depending on the weather. And, uh, you know, I, I sat on him some, um, but he was sore. I mean, they really did do a number on him to keep him racing until he was 10 years old. Right. So, um, so I'd get on him bareback and, you know, or with a saddle and, you know, we just kind of mess around. I, I didn't, I'm not one of those stories where I turned his life around and he became this fabulous jumper and, you know, did three day eventing or he's a great dressage horse. 
no, <laughs> that's not the story. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but you you did turn his life around. Yeah. So I think that's even more amazing um, that you guys had such a connection. So now he, you have done work with Mm -hmm. rescuing horses or at least via the TRF as one of the volunteers. Talk a little bit about what you've also done for some of these horses coming off the racetrack. Um, You know, it's, it's coming back well, I, and, and let me back up. So I, I lost Magnum in um, 2013 and he had been kicked in the field um, by another horse and ended up breaking his stifle. Um, and we, we had, you know, we did everything we could for him for about 30 days. And then I came out one day and he just, he, he was, something had happened and um, so I ended up putting him down um, on the farm. His head was in my lap. You know, I knew what to expect um, for sure. Um, the dogs were right next to him. It was really quite something, um, but, you know, had to let him go. Um, so coming back into the hunter-jumper world, um, because I, I teach, I'm back in Chicago again, and I teach little ones how to ride on Saturday mornings. And they're little, you know, they're, you know, four years old, six years old. Um, so, and the the stigma around thoroughbreds coming off the track is, it can be tentative unless people have actually worked with them. So not only do I try and, and spend as much time as I can with the TRF, um, even though it's from afar, I'm always advocating the fact that these thoroughbreds are, you know, are, are pretty special um, and they do have other uses and they can be used for, um, you know, the, the, the handicap writing facilities. Um, that's probably politically incorrect, but uh, the, the, you know, the, the challenged kids that, that want to connect with these horses or even the, um, you know, the veterans that want to connect. These thoroughbreds are unbelievable for doing that because most of them have been around the country and they're kind of bomb proof, um, for lack of a better word, and they connect well with people. So I constantly am, you know, pushing the, you know, well, what about the thoroughbreds? Well, what about the thoroughbreds? Well, what about the thoroughbreds? Um, so, you know, I do have a, the other way that, that I've connected with the TRF is I have a course up on the Tony Robbins platform um, called Anxiety to Action, um, Three Steps to Family Unity Before and After a Loved One Has Passed. So whenever anybody buys the course on the platform, the, the course takes about an hour, Um but I donate 10% of those proceeds right back to the TRF. So it's another way that I'm trying to, you know, trying to stay in the loop and, uh, and give back a little bit. So, you know, so that's, that's what I'm trying to do for the TRF as well. Well, it's just a, it's a, well, first of all, that's something you can speak on with so much knowledge and authentic and talking about that. And also just giving back to the TRF is, is always something that's commendable. Um, now, at the end, as I mentioned to you, like mm-hmm. to talk about 
just little rapid fire questions. Okay. And all the, all the well, first of all, I gotta I gotta know. I mean, obviously his initials were PI. Did Magnum just kind of come organically? Oh yes, it was so funny because they were, you know, he's in a bad spot, you know, had to move, you know, fast. So, you know, emails are flying. So to to condense his name, everything was PI. So of course, you know, and and us old people know Magnum PI. Well, I guess there's another series up, but anyway, um, so Magnum was, you know, it definitely came to the to the forefront for his barn name. Um, so yes, so that's how Magnum came about for sure. <laughs> well, what was Magnum's favorite treat? Um, my shirt, actually. Yeah, he 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 definitely liked to chew on things, but you know when I could get my shirt out of his mouth, um, he liked his peppermints for sure. <laughs> true, true, uh, racehorse. Yes. Um, what? Um, if he had a theme song, what would it be? Oh boy, that's a good question. I guess I never thought about it. Um, you know why I asked this question is hmm. because I've been approached by so many jockeys that mm-hmm. they would love when they want a race to have like a theme song played when they went into the winner's circle. So I'm like, well, why shouldn't the horses have one too? You know? uh, all right. Well then Magnum's theme song would have to be send in the clowns. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> oh no. I'm going to have to Google that one. Yeah. You're going to have to Google that one, but you know, he was just a big goof and Aww. because he was a pleasant colony, all pleasant colonies went around with their tongues sticking out of the side of their mouth. So, you know, they were always getting into things. Um, so, yeah, send in the clowns. Google it. I will. A <laughs> uh, little MJ action with the with the tongue hanging out. Um, yeah. What If he was a person, what would his drink of choice be if you guys were sat at a bar somewhere? Oh, a Guinness. Love it. Perfect. <laughs> um Okay, what was his favorite thing to do with you or just in general? Um, he was always watching everything and everybody. So, like, his all I had, <clears throat> excuse me, to keep him in his stall, I never closed the door. It was just, and he didn't even have a webbing, it was just the crossbar, and he would never cross it, but he had to be looking and checking things out and making sure that, so he was, you know, he was, he was kind of the security guard. Um, and he just loved to be around people, you know, for everything that he had been through, it was amazing to me, but you know, if I would bring him out and, you know, start brushing him or whatever, you know, I would just drop the lead line and he would just, he would stand there all day long until I got out of sight and then he'd wander out of the barn and I'd have to go find him. But, uh, you know, he never took off. He was never, you know, he just, he just wanted to be around kindness. Yeah. is the easiest way that I can say it. I can relate. I like to people watch too. So, but uh, that's very sweet. Well, I mean, did he have a dislike? What was his least favorite thing to do? Um, did he have a dislike? He wasn't real wild about having his feet done. He didn't. He didn't particularly like that. I think because his legs were kind of sore right. at that stage of the game. Um, 
And, you know, I mean, and he would, <clears throat> if you weren't paying enough attention to him, he would literally take you by the shirt and drag you wherever he wanted you to go. Gently, mind you, but he was, you know, he had to be the center of attention. So he did not like it when you paid attention to other horses, dogs. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. He just had to be the center. Well, before we started recording, we heard, or I heard your dog in the background. You're very much a dog person too. How did mm -hmm. your dogs and Magnum get along? Um, I could not have written the script any better. Um, I really couldn't. I mean, where when whenever we would move, um, you know, the the dogs were certainly with me. He was with me. It was just. You know, and I had two dogs at the time. Well, I had a bunch of different dogs, I suppose. But uh, he just, you know, he they never bothered him. You know what I mean? He just accepted them as part of the family. I mean, I, I that was, you know, when, when you find your soul horse, so to speak, um, they just become part of you. And so all of the extensions of you are part of them as well. So it was just... It was just our family. He, they never bothered him. He never tried to bite. He never tried to kick. He, you know, he would sniff them. Um, but, you know, but that was it. I mean, when he went down that last day, um, the dogs came in to his stall with me when I was on the phone with the vet. And uh, and they just, they sat down and they, yeah. they didn't move. We the, the four of us were in that stall until, you know, we had to bring him out of the stall. But um but yeah, no, we were all in there together. It was they were they were pretty tight. Surprisingly, they were pretty tight. It's amazing how the mm -hmm. dogs and the horses just know that mm -hmm. they're all part of your circle. It's Absolutely. all one big family. That's yeah, really cool. It, it really well, is. It really is. So, what was what's the biggest lesson or value that Magnum taught you? That kindness truly is everything everything you know um a and and that kindness is contagious and you know when when any, ever anybody adopts an x race horse and they're trying to make a difference in these horses lives um everybody comes together you know the 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 blacksmiths come out and they they do his feet for you know half the price magnum had a cyst that burst in his sinus cavity and you know he was rushed to a clinic they did brain surgery on him to get all of that out of there and they only charged me the cost i mean it the how this community the horse community comes together when when somebody is really reaching out to make a, a horse's life better, whatever scenario they were in is, is astounding. I mean, it's, it just, it, it renews your faith in humanity. It really does. And, you know, any act of kindness, you know, whether it's, you know, bringing donuts to the entire surgery crew three days after Magnum's home with me and, you know, um, making sure that the the van companies that you recommend them to everybody because they gave you a discount to ship it. I mean, it just, the, the exponential impact when you touch one of these horses' lives is, it's, 
it has to be witnessed. It just has to be witnessed. Make that difference. Make the difference. It matters. It all matters. Oh, Connie, well, well said. I've been in that position and it's just that kind of universal togetherness that Mm -hmm. we all come together for the horses. And Mm -hmm. as you said, if you have that kindness, you, you know how to give it out. Well, what an amazing, amazing story, Connie. I, this is probably going ranking up there is one of my favorites and just listening to you talk and you've put your words together so eloquently to share Magnum's story. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope, you know, if, if I touch one person to push them over that little edge to, to make that difference, then I've certainly done my job and, you know, I miss my Magnum man. I miss him every single day. So there's that as well. This week's edition of Off Track with Connie Harrison about her beloved Magnum, a.k.a. Pleasant Italian. So many times throughout the interview, I was laughing, on the verge of tears, and just overall touched by Connie's story. I mean, obviously she's a very fun person to talk to, uh, but as she said, there's so much kindness and she has so much kindness in her heart and I really really just enjoyed hearing her speak about her horse and how yes she saved him but in the end he was the one who saved her and two when she was talking about kind of what Magnum opened the door for her to do with these horses and when she was talking about thoroughbreds being capable of connecting with veterans with Uh, people on the autism spectrum it's because these thoroughbreds these off-track thoroughbreds especially have lived such full lives and they have seen so much so they can relate to these people who too like veterans who have seen so much and gone through so much and then too kind of understanding and being so sensitive to be just partners and really getting a, a child with autism to kind of open up so there's so many avenues for these horses when they are done with their racing lives and a lot of them find their way to the thoroughbred retirement foundation to be a part of the second chances program as they help um, inmates uh, find their way back to having productive lives and as always if you want to support the trf make sure you go to trfinc.org slash off track to help